Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is George Steele. I'm the uh, director of the theater here. It's a great pleasure to welcome you uh, to this third installment of our Writers in Exile series. Uh, we're very happy to be working with the Penn American Center, uh, who are uh, collaborators and co-conspirators on this wonderful event. Uh, this is the third in a series of four. The next and final one is uh, next Wednesday. Um, these four evenings are part of our larger Theater of Ideas series, and if you uh, find our brochure as you either come in or leave, which is out front, um, it lists the rest of the constituents of the series, and there's a change in one of them. I'll tell you, uh, on Friday, April the 9th, uh, we indeed have Edward Said and uh, Noam Chomsky in discussion. Uh, the brochure lists it uh, as being at the Casa Italiana, but it has been moved uh, to Miller Theater. It's still free and open to the public, uh, and it's still at the curious time of 2.30, uh, but that's uh, when we could fit it in. Uh, please join us here. It's free and open to the public. It uh, was moved here uh, owing to overwhelming demand. Um, so I hope you'll be a part of it. Um, also, I think our ushers are handing out uh, cards. Uh, if you care to give us your address, we'll uh, send you updates on programs as they occur and include you in future mailings. It would be uh, nice to have it. But it's uh, very nice to have you all here. Uh, without uh, further ado, I'll introduce Michael Roberts, the Executive Director of the Penn American Center and uh, one of the great people behind this series. Thank you very much. Thanks, George. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the third in Penn's four-part series on writers and exile. Let me first remind you that next Wednesday, February 24, we will have Susan Sontag together with the Yugoslav novelist Dubrovka Ugresic to discuss literary exile in the context of the Yugoslav Civil War. Please join us again for what I know will be a very interesting evening. In our first two programs, we met individuals whose experiences of exile were forcible and sudden, who were picked out for silencing on the basis of their politics before they could begin to present the subtler challenge that the literary intellectual eventually poses to the established order. Uh, in his wonderful memoir, Out of Egypt, Whiting Writers Award winner Andre Asaman explores these more metaphysical regions of exile uh, it's a work that demonstrates the writer's unique ability to answer the experience of a lost home in the most enduring possible fashion, shoring the fragments of his ruin to recreate a, a beautiful vanished world, in Asaman's case, the exotic multicultural metropolis of Alexandria. Of course, it's a very special milieu that Asaman recaptures, that of a cosmopolitan and highly cultivated Sephardi family whose experience reminds us of the unique relation of the Jewish people to the subject of exile. As Leon Wieseltier put it, out of Egypt saves a time and place from oblivion and fixes it forever with unforgettable vividness. It also rediscovers one of the profoundest insights of literature, that every person of sensibility is in some sense an exile from a home that is one's own imagined creation, the home of one's youth and remembered happiness. Mr. Asaman will further his explorations of this terrain in the forthcoming Letters of Transit, Reflections on Exile and Memory, a collection of new essays by five distinguished writers on the subject of exile, home, and memory, and the role of language and literature in recovering that which has been lost. Mr. Asaman's interlocutor tonight will be Paul Berman, whose highly stimulating essays on culture and politics have appeared in The New Yorker, The New Republic, Dissent, and many other publications. 
As a former flower child, uh, now aging and fattening baby boomer, I appreciated the supreme compliment paid to the generation of 1968 by Paul's latest book, A Tale of Two Utopias, in which he sorts out the genuine and enduring legacies of 1968 from the ephemeral ones. He is the kind of hopeful Democrat who encourages us to believe that the heritage of the 1960s and of 1989 may, may yet prove to be more than a miniseries at home and a peacekeeping force abroad. Let's please welcome Andre Asaman and Paul Berman. Hello, I'm Paul Berman. I'd like to begin by asking Andre Asiman a question. It's a very long-winded question. It's practically a speech. It's about his book, Out of Egypt. The book recounts scenes of his boyhood in Alexandria, Egypt, combined with a few scenes from his adulthood in which he goes to England, Paris, Venice, to ask aging relatives questions to try and help him recapture these scenes from his boyhood. And this is a tremendous book, I think, really. I think it is a, a classic of a certain type, a very specific type. And this book has, to my eye, three great traits. What I want to do is ask Andre which of these three great traits was most in his mind when he sat down to begin the book. He can answer any way he'd like. He might say, excuse me, it has 16 great traits. Or he might say, the, the three great traits that I propose misdescribe his book utterly. He can respond any way he wants, but I do want him to respond. <clears throat> the first of these traits is a kind of, is, is a very specific sort of prose lyricism. It's a beautiful lyricism. It's a sensual lyricism, a lyricism of sound, smell, taste, sight, Lyricism that evokes the kind of description that his book has sometimes received, of which would make you think of it as an elegiac book or even a sentimental book. There's also a lyricism that has within it what to my ear is just a faint hint of an accent. I don't mean that the book is written in anything other than perfect English. The English is perfect, it is beautiful English. But it is an English written with a sense of dignity and perhaps formality, which is perfectly expressible in English, but is not necessarily the first instinct of English. But it is the first instinct of other languages, 
Which other languages? Maybe the other language is French. But I don't know. Reading his book, you can't be sure. One of the aspects of his family life in Alexandria that he describes is polyglot. And the, and the, the family speaks at home Italian, French, sometimes Greek, Arabic, Ladino, and at least in prayer, Hebrew. Maybe I've left one out. These aspects, the sensuality and the hint of an accent, of an interesting accent, make up what I think are the special lyricism of the book. That's the first trait. The second trait is a surprise. Because you would think from this lyricism that his book is, as I say, elegiac, maybe a little sentimental, a nostalgic book, a book that you might want to pick up because you're going to vacation in Egypt and you'll read this book and, and get some savory sense of, of Alexandrianness which will, which will increase your tourist's pleasure. But it is not a sentimental book. The emotions, the deeper emotions in the book aren't sentimental or elegiac. They're not bittersweet. They're bitter. And this comes as something of a surprise when you realize this. And to see a bitterness embedded within the lyricism, that's an interesting thing, a novel thing as part of the greatness of the book. And then there's a third trait, which I take to be, which is the deep theme of the book, which is deeper than the lyricism and deeper than the, the emotion in the book. is something which underlies the book. And I don't know what is the correct word for this deeper thing. It's the most moving part of the book. The correct word might be this, Jewishness. Or it might be this, Judaism. Slightly different things. Now my question to Andre is, which of these three aspects was most in his mind? The three aspects are the aesthetic, the lyrical quality of the book, the emotional aspect, the, the, the direct emotion, which is a certain kind of bitterness, or is it this third aspect, the underlying Jewishness of the book? Now he may answer, <laughs> I'm predicting this, it's a preposterous question because all three things, if he accepts my description of three traits, that all three things were in my mind and it's impossible to separate out one from the other. But I would say, you only have two legs and you have to begin on one of them. Which of these aspects, I would like to know, was first in his mind, the aesthetic, the emotional, or this other deep thing? Thank you for the question. <laughs> well, first of all, as you no doubt can gather, it's an impossible question to answer. <clears throat> it forces a chronology that um, does not exist. 
as one writes. But it forces one to go back and ask, why did I write? And therefore, how did I write? And did I accomplish what I wanted to do when I started writing? And these are very difficult questions. The answers are unfair. And I will go to the aspect that interests me most. It's the bitterness one. Because it's easy to be elegiac. And it's, it's pleasurable, it's fun, it makes you feel good. You know your reader will appreciate it, so you sometimes, mechanically, you put in a few odors, just to make sure the prose is not too saccharine. So you put the odors, the good odors and the bad odors, the sense of weather, and, and all that stuff. Um, which is necessary because when you write about the past, you're really saying, I want to go back to the past. So as you start writing, you want to make sure that you have the tapestries ready, the scene is set, everything is right for you to walk into the past. But that's not really what happens. Uh, when you start a book from exile, about exile, you're angry and you've had many years to wash down the anger. So part of you says you shouldn't be angry. After all, you're an American, you've settled here, this is your home, etc., etc. But you are bitter, there's no question. And so you want to write something bitter, but you know you cannot do that. And so there's an endless tussling between the desire to go back to something beautiful and the necessity to say, I'm angry that I lost it. And I think this is true of any exile. Even if they're voluntary exiles, at some point, they resent having changed. There are very few exiles, and I know one of them, who will say, I'm happy that such a thing happened, and in fact, I'm happy with who I became. When I wrote Out of Egypt, I was trying to travel back. Or so I thought. And so I wrote a story of my life that allowed me to go back to the house I lived in. That's why I spent a great deal of time describing it with the people I lived with. That's why I described them so minutely, because they were all gone, they were all dead. And so for me to, you, you know, it's like, as in cartoons, sometimes you need to paint the road on which you're going to escape, and then you run into it. You've all seen that scene. Um, but the point is I had to do, be as precise as I could. And what happened is, because the desire to go back was so strong, editors, readers, first readers, said, my God, you really loved Alexandria. And this is very moving. And then they would come to a part at the end of the book in which I said, I hate Alexandria. I couldn't stand it. I wanted to be out. And they said, two people told me that. You have to change this. This is not right. You've been loving this place all along, and now you say that you hate it. So this has to be changed. So I said, and this is apropos of your question, I said, what do you want me to say, that I loved it? Well, that's more like it. I said, fine. So I changed the word hate to love in a second, which told me something else. Clearly, if I could change from love to, to, from hate to love in a jiffy, with no compunction and no, no re sort of resistance to it, that means that it was immaterial or that I didn't know 
and would never know whether there was love or hatred. But it did educate me at that point that I was writing a book that was totally, totally embattled with and against itself, against the scene in which it was set. And I'm always sort of, I like to recall that the most sentimental moments in the novel come up, end up with high sort of bitterness. It's a taste of tartness that should alert any reader that something is not right here. This man is not totally in love with this place. He actually may not even like it. So this was going on. And just to give you an example, um, for those of you who know the book, you know it, for those of you who don't, uh, there's a m scene in the book where um, my father courts a woman and tries to seduce her every night. She's sleeping in their house. And, he, and, and all the men in the house are trying to seduce her. And he, nobody succeeds because she's too beautiful and too angry and too bitter. She's a Holocaust escapee. And uh, one night she says to him, I want to talk to you afterwards. She plays the piano. She plays the piano for everybody. That same night she says, come to my room. So he goes to her room and she says, as she's undressing, this is not going to mean anything. Just keep in mind that this means nothing. And here is this man who is totally in love with this woman, and yet the only price to get her that night is for him to accept the fact that it means nothing. And this is the way that I like to think that I write. You start with deep infatuation with what you're writing about, and you find a way to come out of it hating it or being extremely angry. This has to do with my psychic configuration, but it also means that Anything I write has this same formula. Last part of your question, if I understood it correctly, how do you get out of a book like this? I mean, how do you close? How do you, do you, you sort of come to terms with yourself? And that's very hard. There are no answers. An exile knows that he has to accept a new country, and he knows he has to reject the old one. He knows he has, has to sort of coddle the old one, but he knows he can't have it. So he's embattled constantly. And so how do you come out of this experience as a human being who's gone through some kind of purgation called writing, and then saying, okay, I'm done. I've done what I wanted to do. I've gone back. I've come back from going back, and now I have to go on with my life. It doesn't happen. And so the Jewishness at the very end, and I think you pointed out to that. It, I mean, it ends on the last day of Passover, on the first day of Passover, actually. They're going to leave the next day of Passover, which is totally ironic. A Jewish family leaving Egypt after 2,000 years or more and celebrating Passover, they don't even want to leave. They've been kicked out. So they're forced to reconsider their Jewishness, and yet they have to enact the Jewish ritual of Passover, and nothing makes sense. And maybe we can talk about that scene later on. But I, I just wanted to show that everything tends to be totally paradoxical in, in the book. But in what you're saying, what you're, what you're saying confuses me in this, in this respect. It's because you've left out the Jewishness into the end of your remarks just now. But the Jewishness doesn't come up just at the end of the book the end of the first chapter, we've, we've watched Uncle Vili go through this 
incredibly confused life of his, where he's been a, a Mussolini fascist, and then he's been pro-British, and now he's he, he, all kind of, now he's an English gentleman. And at the very end of this chapter, it's tremendously moving, really. We hear, we overhear him saying his prayers. And we realize Uncle Vili has some deeper quality that we haven't quite understood until this point. And maybe he doesn't understand it. He certainly hasn't understood. It has, certainly hasn't given him a direction in life. But there is some deeper quality. And then the book as a whole, after all, out of Egypt, a book in which the last scene is a, a Passover Seder. This is not without echo. The echo is biblical. And we think, we're bound to think, the narrator and his family are going into exile, but it's not a complete exile. They're not necessarily, or are they? I don't know. Going into exile from their Jewishness. They're going into exile from Egypt. But what about their Jewishness? There's a long literature of books written in New York, like this book. Was this book written in New York? Yes. Absolutely. There's a long literature of books written in New York about Jews who fled the old world to New York. And in that literature, it's often been the case that what's been regretted, one of the first of those books is by um, Ab Khan, The Rise of David Levinsky. I don't know if you know this book, 1917. It's very early. But he recalls his, 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 his childhood in Russia and then uh, the, the narrator recalls his childhood in Russia and then his adult life in New York and he's filled with a yearning and a regret for what he's lost. But what he's lost is not Russia or Russianness. What he's lost is his old world Jewish soul, which he's lost to become a, a corrupt, materialist, money-grubbing American. But that isn't that isn't the theme of out of Egypt. And out of Egypt is a deep Jewish resonance of the whole book. And let me ask you, what does Jewishness mean to you? Can you define Jewishness to me? Are you religious? No, totally. Uh, not at all. Um, but the, yes, Jewishness is, but I, if I have to speak about Jewishness, it would be my Jewishness, which is no one else's, or probably it's totally unorthodox and offensive. Um, but it is an awareness that you're born a Jew and that therefore you're stuck with it. Uh, it's, it's not precisely a privilege, but it, it's there. And, um, but it also comes with spiritual traits and um, ways of behaving spiritually that are very different or that are probably different. And in, in my case, being Jew, Jewish means, does not mean that you observe certain holidays or that you are aware of certain ways of dealing with the poor and so on, uh, honor your father and your mother, all that sort of stuff, it's immaterial. Being Jewish is to be aware that as soon as you come to 
the age of reason, you are aware of the first thing, which is that you've already lost something. And the, the, the perception that you are operating from loss is something that I find, or that I call, whether I'm right or wrong, profoundly Jewish. Now, you say you're not religious. I'm Jewish and not at all religious. But I don't have any faith that you are not religious. <laughs> and it's because I've read your book. That a book which, which, which strums the biblical note about the events in the life of your family, last Seder in Egypt, in which the author claims to be strictly secular, is a little suspicious. But what I want to know, you don't have to answer that. And what I want to know is, the Jewishness, is it, I, you've said it's a sense of loss. But maybe the sense of loss is a thing itself, which is a wealth, a richness. One of the things that fascinates me about the book is the Ladino that is spoken by the family. There's a line in the book where you describe your two grandmothers uh, lapsing into Ladino with the, with the, with the, with the, the, the pleasure and satisfaction of left-handed people who've been pretending to be right-handed all day and now can go back to being, to being left-handed people. Ladino, now what is Ladino? Ladino is, well, you, you should explain to me what is, what, what is Ladino. I'll give you my understanding of it. Ladino is the, is the Spanish. It's the language of the Spanish Jews. It's 13th or 14th century Spanish. And the particular history that has led people to speak Ladino is that they were the Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492 and who scattered across the Mediterranean to the Balkans or Turkey or Morocco. And some of them ended up in Egypt. And they retained the Spanish. Now what, what strikes me is that this language of theirs, Ladino, there's something moving about the language, about the idea of the language, in that these are people who've been expelled from Spain and retain, linguistically at least, a memory of Spain. Uh, there's a wonderful little book in a cheap paperback edition of the medieval Spanish ballads called Flor Nueva de Romances Viejos, which was assembled by a man named Menendez Pidal in the 1930s. And what he wanted to do was recover the original medieval Spanish ballads that are known as the Romancero. And this, these ballads had disappeared from civilized and educated Spain. To find them, to find the original versions, he could only go to the most rustic regions of Spain, sometimes found them. And then he had to go all over the world to find places where some memory of those, of those ballads remained. And among those places was to Morocco and the Balkans, which is to say 
where he could find the original medieval version of the ballads still living was among the Spanish Jews who had left in 1492 and who by the 1920s and 30s were living in, in North Africa and in the Balkans, which is an incredible thing to think of, that, that these Jews had left Spain and had retained some love of Spain and some memory of Spain to which they were faithful. Yet Ladino is not just Spanish, it's also Hebrew. There's, a, there's an occasional phrase, I, I love this phrase, saludi baruch, in, 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 in the book, which is half Spanish and half Hebrew. And so these, these Ladino-speaking Jews had retained a memory of Spain from four or 500 years earlier, which contained within it a memory of Israel from 1,000 years earlier, 1,500 years earlier. And even, even, even what you think of as Hebrew retains some of this, this quality. The only people on earth who speak ancient Persian are religious Jews who speak Aramaic. Nobody in, in Iran speaks Aramaic. Only the Jews remember ancient Persian. So to me, I, I read the book and I'm sorry to go on with such a long speech about this, but it's one of the moving things that I find in the book. I read the book and, and I'm struck by the, some deep complexity in the idea of exile because D.H. Lawrence reminds us to trust the teller, trust the tale and not the teller. And, and here I think that, that, that the tale that Andre has told is very complicated, is more complicated on the idea of exile and what he's just represented. That the idea of exile is itself in some way part of Jewishness, or is it Judaism? I, 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 I don't know. Well, just to pick up on this, the, the other notion that is embedded in all this is the notion of everything is provisional. And I think that when you are living in Egypt as a Jewish family, even I mean, as soon as I was born, it was obvious that this was the end of our stay in Egypt, and within a few years it would end. But you always had the sense of that everything was provisional. And it's interesting because as you look backwards, everything was provisional, and as you look ahead, everything is provisional. Everybody in my family was of a different nationality because they arrived as stateless people, having been Turkish Jews but they arrived and had stateless passports. They became Italian. Some of them, from being Italian, wanted to become French. And from being French, they ultimately wanted to accede to Englishness. That was the, 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 the ultimate thing that could happen to the best, is to become an Englishman, not a New Yorker. But as you, this was their, their vision of how they were, where they were headed. But all they knew is that every nationality was provisional. But as you turn backwards, it's the same thing. Before Egypt, they came from Turkey, where they, they had stayed for 400 years, but there it was provisional too. Before that, they had been in Italy. Before that, they were in Spain, and before that, I don't know where they came from. And they maintained the memory of each place in everyday lore, as it were, so that when you grow up in a place, like you don't grow up only with a very old great-grandmother who dies at the age of 106, a grandmother who's 90 almost, 
and um, then there's my mother, and then there's the other generation. You don't grow up with all these generations, but because there's so many of them, and because all these people have traveled all over the place, you're also growing up with a many cultures and many pasts. And I think this is what interests me as a writer writing in 1995, having read Proust for many years. It's the notion that there's not only one past, but there's many pasts, and there's not just many pasts, but that each past is the product. And here it gets tricky. It, it's, each past is the product of re-remembrance, because everybody not only remembers having been somewhere, but they remember remembering that other place. Because everybody in my family was homesick. Though those who had come from Turkey were homesick for Turkey, though they would never want to go back. Those who had come from France and came to Egypt afterwards were homesick for France and yet sort of kicked when they were expelled from Egypt. They didn't want to leave. So you have people who are always gloating on some other place which is not quite right. And, and, the, and the language they spoke, or your grandmother spoke, was homesick for Spain yes. 500 years before. And, the, and that language is homesick for Israel. So I think, isn't this Jewishness that you're describing? One thing that you're describing, definitely, is a certain kind of New York book. Because it's not just uh, Ab Khan. I, there's, a, there's a whole series of books. That, I think of, you must know this book by, by Henry Roth, Call It Sleep, which is a very beautiful book from the early 30s, in which the book is written essentially in two languages. Andre's book is written in several languages, really, as I, as I hear it. Henry Roth's book is written in two languages. I mean, it's all in English, but it represents two languages. There's a, there's an, a New York English, which is fairly crude, and then the, then the book goes into Yiddish, and the Yiddish is elegant and beautiful. It's the opposite of what you would normally think. So when, when, the, when the, the hero of the book is a little boy, and when, when his mother lapses into, speaks in Yiddish, it, it's, it's, it's marvelous. And then there's back to, back to the New York world in which the little boy is, is growing up, and it's a crude New York English. And it seems to me, this kind of thing is, is by now a long tradition in, in New York. I mean, it's uh, 60, 70 years old of, of books written in New York with a memory of some other language, which is itself a memory of some other language, and, 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 and which, which, which the, in which all of these books tend to be lyrical. Uh, and, 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 and which the, 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 the beauty of the lyricism is all in mixed with, with a, a bitterness. All I can think is that um, I'm glad you didn't end up in England because <laughs> I think that your book about, about exile from Egypt is in a certain respect a deeply New York book. And, well, what do you make of that? No, I, I think you're right. It is New York. And it was written in New York. And New York helped in many, many ways. And I mean, the way you live in New York makes you, I mean, it also sharpens your perception of what you hate in New York. 
in, in order to force, I mean, that's the other aspect of it. New York helps, but hating New York because New York is so different that you can, you almost are desperate to pick up any nuance of Egypt in New York so that at least you can find a home again or at least feel comfortable. So New York has helped in that way. Paris doesn't at all because Paris is so close to Egypt that it's, um, you feel that there's no contrast and therefore you can, I, I cannot live in Paris, I cannot be in Paris. Whereas New York allows me, because of this contradiction, to feel rather at home and I feel very comfortable here. Now let me ask you, you left Egypt in 1964, five, five. The, throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and all into the 70s, I would imagine even later, most of the North African Jews left North Africa, and some tremendous number of them ended up in Paris. In Paris now, there's a very large literature of Jews from Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, and elsewhere. Does this interest you at all? Do you keep up with this? No. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why. I mean, this is a totally different issue, but it's... When I read, I mean, you have to realize, I started reading when I was in Egypt, and the reason why I read seriously, was because I didn't have enough friends, and I didn't like the friends that were available to me, and I didn't like life in Egypt, so you, I just hid in books, and I started reading books at that period, and the books were supposed to do the very fundamental thing that was supposed to take me out of a place that I felt was gone. It was going down fast. Um, I didn't think it was even clean. I didn't, I felt it was dirty. Um, and this is my view of also many third world places, they're dirty, they're, and it's an unfair judgment, but it's something that I feel, and I would want to go and escape in French novels, English novels, and Russian novels, and those just opened up wonderful vistas, so that my induction into literature was always through a desire to escape Egypt, and when I got to Italy, things were even more sort of bleak in Italy, where we were now suddenly very, very poor. So that the only amount, of the, the money I had every week was 500 liras, which is less than a dollar, and I would have to buy a book. That's all I wanted to do, is just buy one book a week, and I had to read it within that week so that I could use my next uh, allowance. But all these books had to, maintain, had to do many things. They had to essentially keep up this desire to escape Egypt now that I was in Italy, okay? And when I went to France, I wanted to read books about a France that was other than the France I was in. And same thing about England, going to England, the first thing I did was buy Dostoevsky, as if I wanted to stay out of there. Um, and when I, come to the, I came to the States, of course, the first thing that people always ask me is, what do you think of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and I've read none of them, because I only read English, French, and Russian novels of at least at the latest in the 19th century. So when you're talking about <laughs> colonial writers, they're basically telling me about the hardships of the, um, of the emigre into Europe. I don't want to know it. I don't want to know a thing about it. I'm not interested, um, because it's too close, maybe. Um, but second of all, when they start describing the sea, the sand and you know North Africa or India, I have no interest. I don't want it because 
I'm busy going in the other direction, and these people who are, are basically going, take me in the opposite direction to Africa and Asia, and I don't want to because I'm too busy trying to be a citizen of Western Europe, which I will never be a citizen of, because that is maybe my true exile. So that as I write this book, I'm also trying to make nice to Europe so that they will take me in. Okay. Um, but I mean, it, it happens on many, many levels. Um, but, the, but you're aware that um, among the North African writers, North African Jewish writers who ended up in Paris is, uh, say, Jacques Derrida. Yes. That's not someone who writes about the, the sands. Or no, he doesn't. And the blue sky of the. Oh, know. but no, but he does. He does write about that um, Jabez. And as soon as yeah. I got to that, say, oh, uh, it's, it's one of my com compatriots, yeah. you know. But and there's this Albert Memmi and all those people. Yeah. I mean, they're very good writers. Yeah. In fact, this is the other irony: some of the best writers in French in, in French today are not really totally sort of autochthonous French. They come from elsewhere. They come from the colonies. And I think the same thing can be said about. English, when you will take stock of what's happening from India and Bangladesh, all these wonderful English writers that are coming. Uh, th this is really it's funny that the very people I should appreciate the most are the people I don't want to hear about. Uh, well, it's certainly true that in, 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 in France, uh, quite a few of the best writers are not originally French. And quite a few of them are Jewish, more than ever in the whole history of French literature, yes, which is quite an interesting thing. And of the French Jewish writers, quite a few of them are North African. And of the North African writers, a number of them have gone back to Judaism or have investigated it. And let me drag you back into that direction a little bit because what I keep wondering about is whether something, I keep wondering whether something isn't happening and that I, I wonder whether a literature of Jewishness, a new literature of Jewishness, isn't arising, which does have something religious in it. Uh, your fellow North African, Derrida, ha has, has ended up, <laughs> excuse me for that, has ended up writing a book about, along with everybody else, writing a book about Freud's book, Moses and Monotheism, which is really a book about Judaism. Uh, some of the other uh, famous Frenchmen who actually have in, uh, Egyptian Jewish roots have ended up back in Talmud study. study. One of the great leaders of the uh, French New Left in the late 60s was uh, and early 70s was a guy named, known as Pierre, Vic, uh, Pierre no, Victor, whose real name is Benny Levy, who was an Egyptian Jew who's now ended up as a famous Talmudist in Strasbourg, someplace like that. There is a certain current in that direction. In your own case, the actual book that you've written is, is the complete opposite of your, your, the description of yourself that you've just given. It's not a book of escape to ingratiate yourself especially to the West. It's a book of return or, or of examination of 
your roots in Egypt. And then again, it's a book, as I say, with a Jewish deep, a deep Jewish theme, a religious theme as well as. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that it's it's. I mean, there is Jewishness in it, but it's a very watered down and popularized Jewishness. And I'll give you an example. Um, at the very end of the of this of the book, it's the last night, and it's they just done a kind of mock Seder because the person who could recite the Haggadah is dead. And so nobody else can do it and nobody wants to, so we all start giggling. And so we end up having dinner without really celebrating a Passover Seder. At which point I decide to go out and take a walk. And as I take the walk, um, there's more to say about this walk. Um, but I took a walk and I go to the, to what is the, the beachfront, the stone wall of Alexandria. And I look out and I say, gee, you know, this is really weird. And I say I'm hungry because somehow we must have skipped something. And there's a man who's preparing something for a celebration of Ramadan. And I say, okay, I'll eat this. It looks good. And he gives it to me for free. Um, and I, I sort of gulp it down. And I realize, of course, that my aunt would mind this because it has, un it has leavened bread on it or whatever it is. And, and I couldn't care less anyway. I've just already said that I didn't want to be part of any of these next year in Jerusalem, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. Um, but as I'm out there, and this may show you how conflicted the book is, and I knew that I was doing this on purpose as, in, as a writer, as I'm standing out there looking out at night to the sea, feeling rather moved. This incident is the moment when I realized that I hate Alexandria and then we transformed it into love. Um, but at that point, I, I say, being Jewish means nothing. And I say, the only thing I wish that I could do is next year, I know I'm going to be in Europe, though I don't know where, France, Italy. Next year, at exactly this time, on this day, I'm going to have to look back and remember that I was here and that I made this deal, this rendezvous with myself in the future. Um, this I have to do. Well, we all do this kind of thing, you know, next year on this day, let me remember to do this. Now, we all do this and it's okay psychologically, it must accomplish some profound ritualistic need. But in the setting in which it was done, it was really the whole gesture of the Passover Seder transposed on what I knew was a very Wordsworthian thing. As you're a child, you look out and you say, next summer, next year, in five years, I'll be back here and I will have to remember having been here. And this kind of sort of turning in on yourself is, exists, but in this case, it was the Seder. It was my Seder with myself. Now, one of the other books that I have in mind in, in, in speculating that maybe there's a new wave of Jewish writing that is overtly Jewish writing is a book by Leon Wieseltier called Kaddish, and he says in this, uh, a wonderful book, and he says in this book, in the absence of Talmud, there is no Judaism. There is only Jewishness. So I agree with you, there's no Talmud in, in your book. And, but we, can, we, we, can, we don't have to beat this, this issue to death, but, but I do know with, a, with just a little touch of the rye that your book ends on a biblical note. Yes. 
And, and the first chapter ends with the sound of Hebrew. And so it's a secular book. Now, the, do, you, do you have a particular way of describing yourself as, as, as a writer? Uh, I see that you said you're, you're writing a, a novel now and, and your book out of Egypt could easily have been a novel. You could have called it a novel and it would have, it would have seemed like a novel to me. Um, well, it felt like a novel to me too. Um, but I mean, I mean, it was written to sound like a novel. I mean, the facts are real, but I wanted it to feel like a novel. And so that opens up a whole can of worms. Um, but you also write essays. And, and, and your essays have some of the same lyrical quality, uh, but to different purposes, or somewhat different, different purposes. How, how, do, how, do you think of, how do you think of this kind of writing? Or let me ask you, let me put it to you in a different way. Who are your heroes, your literary heroes? Do you have literary heroes? Do they come and go? They come and go, but I think it would not be Odysseus, that's for sure. Odysseus? <laughs> yeah, he's too clever for me. And um, I mean, I really like the fact that I'm, and I, I come out this way in the book, and in everything I write, I really want to remind you that if you thought I was this you know, this man who knew what he was doing, I'm not, I'm really Schlemiel. And this, I wanted to come through when I'm playing backgammon with my uncle, Vili, who's a champion at backgammon, and he said, you know, you don't know how to play, do you? And I said, no, I, I don't. I said, I figured you wouldn't. And this is typical all along. Um, but there's a purpose to this. But, but the heroes are really Hamlet. That is ultimately my real hero, but it can't be a hero. I mean, Hamlet is, is all of us, and, but that's who I would identify with immediately. But there is something that is, again, I, I don't want to have to bring it all the time, but I will, because it sits between us. It's the Jewishness thing. Um, and I mean, I think that being Jewish is, in, in many respects, without idealizing the thing, it's a way of being contrarian of saying, no, I won't, I won't believe this, I won't do like what everybody else does. And that applies also, I think, at least in my perception, of no, I'm, not, I'm going to disbelieve this for a while. And if being Jewish is what you are, then I'm going to disbelieve being Jewish. And if I'm a disbelieving Jew, then I'm going to disbelieve that I'm a disbelieving Jew. And it goes on forever. But it's, it's and I think it is the posture of, of everything I do. And it's very sort of like Montaigne, there's nothing new to this. It's the fact that as soon as you take a position, you go against it. And uh, you also go in, against the attack on that, it's sort of the denial of the denial ad infinitum. But it is the mood in which I write. And I, and I think that every character in my book comes from somewhere else. And every character I can think of is never a person that grew up in the place where the action is taking place. They come from elsewhere because that is what unsettles them and unhinges them. They're already messed up from within. Uh, most of my characters are. In the book, they certainly aren't all messed up. Um, ironically, it's also interesting that most of the people that I like are Ashkenazi Jew, because I hate Sephardim in the book. Um, so there's, there's all these embattled positions. But I want to take it one step further, and then we can come back to Hamlet. Um, because in my 
there's a chapter in which there's an Italian gentleman in my book. He's my Italian tutor. He wanted to escape Mussolini, so he came to Egypt. And after the fall of Mussolini, he was supposed to go back to Italy, where he had property. The property had been seized by Mussolini, so he's perpetually waging this long and unending suit to retrieve his property. But he doesn't want to go back to Italy because, as he says, I've become Egyptianized. Now, in his company is this woman, a, a, my nanny, who is a, a Persian woman, very beautiful, who is in love with an Englishman who should not be in Egypt, but he is in Egypt. And he doesn't want to go back to England either. And she doesn't want to go back to Iran because she was educated in Spain. Um, so you, and meanwhile, I'm their friend, and the first thing I want is to go to Italy, and I want to go to France, and I want to get out. So they're telling me something that is, goes exactly opposite of what I want to do. And I think this kind of, I call it a tussling, but there are other words that I use, and I just recently did a speech on counterintuition, because I think that I write counterintuitively and the characters are counterintuitive. Everything is against you. And in that respect, I, we spoke about this this, this afternoon, um, I think that when you just look at what the prophets of Israel have always been saying to the people of Israel, you will always wonder, are these men well disposed to the Jewish people or are they really, do they hate them and think that they deserve everything they got? And it's this, of course they don't hate them, but they think they should be punished. And this goes on, and, and uh, it, it's, it's very strange. I think this, this being so ill at ease with who you are and what you've inherited, and realizing that you don't have the things that you need to go on in life, is a, has become for me my definition of what Jewishness is. Um, the sense of you always, absent of something necessary to go on. And here we are, I think, two Jews, um, both of us totally disbelieving Jews. Neither has been bar mitzvahed, neither regrets it, right? And, and there's an interesting story because he, Paul is from the States and I'm not from the States, and yet somehow things have managed to bring us together here. And I think it's interesting, and maybe you want to comment on this, the, the, the idea that we also have our hands in many, many, many pies, and we do many, many different things, as if career-wise, we're also feeling, hmm, things are not exactly as they should be, but I don't want them to be in one place. I'd really, I feel that I'm provisionally here. I mean, I, I didn't get tenure at Princeton, so I was, but I always knew I wouldn't. Um, but then I was provisionally at Princeton, but before that I was at the new school, and I knew this was definitely provisional. And, uh, and I don't even know, I mean, the, the question comes, what do you put for your permanent address? You know, they have two addresses in applications, current address and permanent address. And the permanent address, I always approach with some misgiving. What should I put? You know, my parents, but they're very old. Um, <coughs> Um, you know, I mean, don't yeah. you have this discomfort too? Uh, well, the, 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 the French word for this, or maybe it's the Spanish word, is uh, Luftmensch. And, and, and what that means is somebody who lives on air who hasn't got a permanent uh, address. Now, whether that's particularly uh, Jewish or whether that's a, um, a fact of a certain kind of intellectual life, um, I. I don't know. 
Uh, I suppose there's a, there's, a, there's a Jewish aspect of it, um, maybe uh, at some deep level, uh, Jewishness itself is, 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 is connected to that, but it's, but it's a literary problem or, 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 or a cultural problem of today. So let me, let me throw this question back to, back to you. Do you consider yourself somebody whose natural home is the university? And you've just, uh, in, in the universe, uh, that is to say universities in general in which you've, you've, you've jumped around from place to place? Or is the university a, uh, just uh, something that, that, is it just a gig to you? Is, 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 is your real life outside the university? This is, this is a great concern to me because I, I, I think that something uh, quite terrible has happened to American intellectual life, which is that on the one hand, the university has expanded enormously the number of, of, of university positions and, and, and university uh, people involved in universities has become so vast that university life has come to dominate in some way intellectual life in America and literary life. And on the other hand, certain other kind of uh, intellectual or literary life in America has, has shrunk. And so we, we have a situation now in which it's, it's, it's ever harder to get by outside of the universities, ever easier to get by inside the universities if you're properly credentialed. But the universities haven't actually changed. That is to say, universities remain hospitable to a certain kind of academic life, which is traditional to the universities, but the universities have not altered their, their intellectual life. It's not that, that the kind of life that used to be associated with certain non-academic magazines has been taken into the university where it can continue thriving. It's been taken into the university where it, where it falls to pieces, uh, or so it seems to me. And uh, how do you think of yourself in these, in these terms? Are you a university man, an anti-university man? No, I mean, it's when I'm at the, in the university, I, I long for being a writer. And when I'm at home writing, I, I frequently think of, um, of being back and teaching. And, and I think that this, but th for me, this is natural, okay? Um, and if I'm in one university, I long to be in another one. Um, I had this rather funny situation happen to me this, this fall where I was offered a position that I wanted. And as soon as I got it, I realized that I wasn't very happy with that and that I wanted my old position back, which was very kindly given back to me. So, um, I, mean, there's, I mean, it becomes a terrible thing, but of course I'm the author of all these mishaps um, because accidents happen not that frequently. But there's a kind of a sense that, in my case, it's very easy. I don't know if it is in yours. In my case, is I'm, I, I'm, I carry Egypt with me now. And uh, wherever I go, it becomes Egypt. And if I stay in a place for too long, then it becomes Egypt, and I have to get out. Um, you see what I'm saying? And where I go, it's not Egypt. <laughs> uh, uh, my only regret. Let me make this comment, and perhaps uh, we should we should open up. And if somebody has has some question to ask, they should they should ask. My only re regret is 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 connected to your to your your comment that. When you're in the university, you wish you could be a writer, and then sometimes when you're writing, you, you wish you could be 
teaching. That seems to me normal and natural. But what I wonder is, why haven't the universities changed? Since I'm at a university right now, this is right here, this, this is my chance to put my plea. Why haven't the universities changed in such a way as to absorb the writer's life? Why can't you be a writer in a university? Now I know, there are writers in universities. But there are writers in universities within a kind of academic setting, which is, which, which is a traditional acad academic setting. Um, why isn't it that the universities can't expand to, to take on the kind of life of the certain kinds of magazines and publishing houses that used to be able to thrive more easily than they can today? I don't think, think of you as the man who can answer that, but maybe, maybe you can. No, I mean, I think that universities, and this is going to be true of all ages, is that there are certain kind of intellectuals that are immediately houseable. They're housed quite easily. And then there's, they have a sort of a, sort of a there's a conglomeration of them, and they form a certain group, and there's a home. They repair to that group, to that ideology. And then there is a new kind of intellectual, and I think it's new in a different way, but it is new, of intellectuals who function two ways. They speak to the university, and at the same time, they cannot resist speaking to the public, and they need both. And their function is bilateral. And in this respect, I find sometimes that the partisanship of certain university settings and the easy jargon that they fall in can be destructive to l larger critics, because you can be a critic provided you criticize certain things in certain ways, but God forbid you should criticize them differently. And uh, then you're no longer a critic, uh, you're, you're sort of a pariah, anyway. Uh, let, let me ask if, there's, if, if anybody has a, has a comment or question. How do Otherwise, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go on, because I have views uh, on this. There's a gentleman there. Yes. Yeah. That's a very hard question, as you know. Um, you know, what do I tell my children? I, I mean, essentially, my children are very young, um, but clearly they have been sort of invaded 
by these stories of this other place that's called Egypt. They know it exists, they know it is part of them, it has not been silenced, it is part of my life, my stories, I mean, there's every day there's something about Egypt that comes up. And so they know, they also know French, which for me is Hebrew, I mean, it's, it's function. Um, the way you want your children to learn Hebrew, uh, I want them to know French because otherwise I can't, can't. What, what am I gonna do with these children? Speak English, this is work. Um, but that is the, that's my biggest concern. But I also want to invest them with this sense of two things. One is that there is a larger, and I, I'll use the word, though I don't like it, multicultural universe out there. It's extremely rich and to which you can belong and tap into. But I also think, and with that, the fact that you're living in the United States and that there is this whole history which belongs to you by right, by necessity gives you a sense of irony, which children normally are not only don't have access to, but they're really not allowed to cultivate irony as a way of being, which I think is necessary. It makes for a deeper person. But on the other hand, I also think, and this was with me, and I discovered it when I was writing out of Egypt, the notion of how do I feel about extinction, about people who have died, um, it, it occurred to me, I never thought of that before, but when you die, who, you know, the people who loved you will love you, um, and their children will probably remember a few things about you, but by the fourth generation, you might as well never have lived at all. And this sense of extinction, I find, is horrible. And I don't know what part of me, I, I hesitate to say it's the Jewish in me, um, but that's not quite it. Um, but I want to make sure that my great-grandmother, abominable human being that she was, uh, continue to exist in their knowledge. Um, and I want my grandmother, who was not a great woman, to continue to exist in them. I want all these people, I want to clutter their lives with characters, with people who have existed and who shouldn't be forgotten forever. And um, in that respect, yes, I want them to remember. Mind you, notice that the gestures are the same. We left Israel, we have a book in which we, all the stories of Israel are contained. In fact, all the diagrams that are necessary for rebuilding the arch or for rebuilding the tabernacle are in there, should you need it. I want the same thing. We left Egypt, all you need is in this book, including lies. And uh, but I think I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a, a complicated question too. In the flyer that Penn distributed, they said I was an Egyptian essayist or an Egyptian exile. Well, I've never been an Egyptian, um, and I'm, I'm not an Egyptian exile. In other words, I'm not a person who is Egyptian and who was kicked out because of his political views or whatever. Um, I should be an Alexandrian, because that's the only definition I have. I belong to Alexandria, I don't belong to Egypt, I don't belong to Cairo, but I belong to an Alexandria that used to exist and that no longer exists. So if you go back to the, old, to the current Alexandria, it has no place for me. And the only other sort of simile I can give you is, supposing you were a Greek in 1452 and you were on a voyage somewhere and then you hear that 
you know, Constantinople has been sacked in 1453, uh, you're clearly not going to become a Venetian, but you can't go home because Istanbul has become Istanbul, so it doesn't exist. So there is no home. You are basically left floating. And so you have to anchor yourself somehow in something. And I found in a rather sort of crazy manner that the only home I could find was not the book or writing or whatever. That stuff doesn't work. I found my home, and I find it tentatively every day there, in the notion that paradox is the only country I understand, the only place I can feel that I belong in, to, whatever, is in a place that does not make sense. And as long as I can define everything around me, I don't mean the food I eat and the people I frequent and so on, but the spiritual life around me in paradoxical terms. I am in New York, but I long to be in Paris, where I used to long to be in Egypt. Uh, as long as I can create this kind of crazy enchainment, somehow I feel comfortable. Now, clearly this is more for a couch than it is for a conversation. Uh, I think this gentleman had a question. Yes. I mean, historically, why? Well, I think I have a Right. Uh, having to really Right now. Well, no, because you see, French is, you have, yes, but it makes sense. Think of it in those terms. French for me makes sense, provided I don't have it. All right? I mean, I love France from across the Atlantic. Um, I hate France when I go there. <laughs> and people who know me know this for a fact. I get into fights at the airport. And with a cab driver, it's, the, it's automatic. Um, but the, the point is that France is a place that I also lost. And I can only deal with it because I lost it. If it were a possibility of moving to France, um, I wouldn't know how to deal with it. I can deal with things. I can absorb them. I can access. I can understand them, provided they were lost. But let me add, don't, don't you think? There are actually two Frances. There's, there, there's the real France, and then there's the, there's the idea of France. The real France is after you get out of the airport, you get in the taxi. The taxi driver with whom you get into a fight is actually a Portuguese immigrant who turns out to be biased against Arabs and Jews and, 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 and is a supporter of Le Pen for some confused reason. And, 
and that, that, that's the real France, or I mean, there are many real Frances, but, but that, that is a real, real France. But then there's an idea of France. Yes. The idea of France is the idea of, of the French Revolution, which is, which is, which is the, the idea of, of, uh, of universality, the idea in which, which everyone can become a Frenchman. It's the idea of universal culture, of, of, of universal, universal rationality, of universal language, of the metric system, of, uh, it, it's, 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 it's that idea, and it's a very grand idea. It's grand, I and idea. It's, it's the new Jerusalem. I mean, in my perception, it's, 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 it, it is it, it's, that's it, that's what you want, but it doesn't exist, and every time I go to France, it is, it's like going, you know, to visit an old girlfriend that you keep thinking you love, but then every time you see her, you say, I do see why I got to hate her, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's like the, 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 the notion, this wonderful and very appealing idea of France, rich, vast, and old, oh, that's also important. I just, I'm going to take another question, but I just want to point out that the difference between you and me that we've been trying to pin down is that to me, France is the France, the, the, so we're discussing the same idea, which to, which to me is the French Revolution and to you is Jerusalem. So, um, <laughs> I have been defined as an Egyptian. Before you answer that, I suddenly now guiltily remembered that I was cued before I came on stage to repeat the questions that people have asked in the worry that they wouldn't be heard by everybody. And I don't know if they've been heard by, by, by everybody. And I'm assuming that was heard? It was not heard. So the question was, what is Andre's relation to Arabic, the Arabic, the Arabic language? An Arab identity. An Arab identity. Yeah. Okay. Well, my relation to Arabic, I've unfortunately, as soon as I attended an American school in Egypt, which I did for a few years, as soon as that happened, I didn't have to study Arabic in school, which was compulsory. And the situation was, learning Arabic, the language was wonderful, and I still love it, but the learning of it was so painful, being the only Jewish boy in a totally anti-Jewish, forget anti-Israel, there were no distinctions. It was anti-Jewish school where I was told I had to pretend I was Catholic, um, and always got caught. I mean, they, couldn't, they never worked. So here I was being taught Arabic and being beaten every day because I was the worst student, and the part of me wanted to be the worst student. Um, and so I, I cannot say, and as soon as I went to the American school, the first thing I was allowed to do is not study Arabic. And from that moment on, my Arabic entirely deteriorated. It is ironic that some, I mean, some of the words stayed, but they stay, you know, because they were in usage. My relationship to Arabic is, is one of mixed love in the sense of when I walk in the street and I hear somebody speaking Arabic, my instinct has always been to go up and speak in Arabic. And to, because I warm up to Arabs, to Egyptians especially. Um, and I love Egyptian Arabic and I, I, I like the humor of it. 
and there was a man who sells candies, for example, right across the school where my children go, and every morning we pass by there, and we go through the same thing. We go into the store, he calls everybody thieves, and he gives my kids three free candies, I insist on paying, he refuses and kicks me out of the store, and we do the same thing every day, it doesn't stop. <laughs> and it's, it's nice, but it is, my, my problem is with Egypt and with Arab culture in, at large, which I've not cultivated, nor have I shown a, an interest in what is happening. Once in a while, people will mention to me something that has happened in Egypt, and I say, oh, how interesting, I should explore this, I want to read this article. But I'm deeply resentful, and I don't think I will forget what was done to me, and what was done to my family, and how shoddily this whole history of my family, I mean the whole moment in Egypt, ended. It was a, a bitter and ugly end, down to the very last. And um, I think I cannot say I forgive it. Um, I don't know if that's, that's, that's an answer that you wanted to hear, but it... Yes. No, no, no. We were not Egyptians, and we were we were close to certain Egyptians. Um, I think it was more a question of class than anything, moneyed class, than the Egyptian people, because I had a lot of friends who were Egyptian, and my parents had lots of friends who were Egyptian. Uh, it was not that, but I think that there was clearly an understanding that we were not ever going to be Egyptian, and that was never going to be a possibility. And they have there were moments in the history of my family because many people in my family became Egyptian for one reason or another and then sort of reverted to whatever they had been. Um, but uh, there was never really a profound desire to become an Egyptian or to become part of Egypt and of the broader Egyptian culture. Remember that Alexandria was not really an Egyptian city. Um, it was a heavily European city. All the institutions were European and that's what I grew up with. And so only during my childhood did it become more and more Egyptian. And I think that President Nasser, when he took over, made a point of turning Alexandria into an Egyptian city, as opposed to Cairo, which continued to, to, be, to remain uh, international.
I don't understand. The, I mean, uh, honestly, it, the question is so pointed and so correct that I don't understand it. Um, uh, because you're asking me if I have made it, uh, articulated a meaning. Um, no, you mean, no, you mean, have I come up with a narrative that would make me able to live with myself and with what has, no, that is impossible. Um, there cannot be such, it would be a fiction. There is no meaning to this. But, but Andre, you have created a narrative. It's your book. It's, it's, isn't, isn't your book the, the it, it, I don't know whether you can live with it or not. It's, that's, that was the rest of your sentence. But, but isn't your book the answer to the, to the question? No. That, that your, your, your book is an expression of, of meaning. It's not, it's not a, a formula. It's not a, a slogan. It's not something you could uh, write on a, on, a, on a banner and carry in a parade. But no, it, I mean, the working out of that meaning, I mean, the meaning is sort of in, in, in its becoming, if you want, but it is a meaning that's always riddled with contradiction. I mean, you can never say, this is what this boy felt as a child. Um, or this is what the narrator feels has really happened to his family. This, this story really, you can place it in a biblical tradition. It won't work, it never will. There is never, I mean, you can't stop the meaning at any moment. Yes, it is in that respect musical, you know, it, it's all a process. And you can never arrest and say, okay, this is what this man believes in. The only thing, and I think it was a reviewer for the New Republic who said this, and it really hit me because I hadn't thought of it. These people, my family, large as it was, they're not Egyptian, they're not French, they're not, but they want to be. The one thing they always seem to forget that they are is Jewish. And so it, it, it starts there. Is that, is, but I think that the process of denying your Jewishness in this way is sort of deeply Jewish. But who can live with that crazy contradiction? You know, that, that doesn't work. And you have to go back to writing it again, just as I have to keep returning to Egypt. Because going back once was so disappointing that I have to go again. And writing about the return was itself not sufficient. So, I mean, you, you don't work it out. There's no working through. I, I'm sorry. I mean, to, to, to me, what you've just defined is, is the purpose of literature. That, that what makes the difference between literary writing and some other kinds of writing is, is, is precisely to allow what you've, what you've just described. And uh, the goal of a, of a literary book is, is to take something that can't be summed up in some other language and to give it a beautiful shape so that, so that one wants to read it. And then that's the summing up. It, it has, but I, I don't insist on, 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 on this point. It just seems to me. To be an intellectual, is it to be uh, always an exile, to be against the prevailing culture? I ask you. <laughs> clever. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I think, A, as you've seen, it works for me. In other words, it, it comes naturally. Um, but there is another aspect to this, is that who are the thinkers in today's world, the people who formulate ideas so that people in the press can go and consume them and repeat them sort of in watered down ways. 
it is the intellectuals, okay? Um, there was a time when an intellectual was a subversive person, and a subversive to the left as he was to the right. Um, and he was always maintaining his critical posture as the privilege of his profession. I have to criticize, that's what I want to do. I will never belong to any ideology. Well, I think that in today's world, um, you have camps, and there are two camps right now. You have the, 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 what is known as PC, and then you have the neocons, and they both have their ideology. And it's, it's very hard because they both have very powerful ways of co-opting writers and thinkers into their camps. And, and uh, clearly I don't belong to either one, nor do I want to. But then if I don't belong to these two groups, where do I belong? Um, there is, I mean, I haven't read it yet, so I shouldn't speak about it, but there's this book, uh, Norman Pothars' book, uh, Ex-Friends, that just come out, and you get a sense that there was a group where whatever the ideology was in time, there was an ideology, and they all subscribed to it. And then finally he broke away and created a new ideology, or subscribed to a new ideology. Well, I don't subscribe to any of them, and I don't want to, and uh, that's very difficult because if suddenly something I write appears in a left um, camp, then I'm branded this. If it appears in the right magazine, then I'm branded that, and I'm neither. And I, I'm, I think what I really object are the pieties that come with either view. You take. Uh, I think that what an intellectual, what defines an intellectual is, is, is a belief in critical thought. And what that means is that an intellectual has to be independent to be independent is different from being in exile. That carries it a little too far. Uh, I'm happy to live in New York. I don't want to have to move to New Jersey. <laughs> uh, I think that what it means, though, to be independent is that you have to sever yourself in some way from a notion of roots, that, it, that if all you're concerned with is, 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 is fidelity to roots, uh, tradition, the past, what's been said before, and you can't be an, in, an independent thinker. You can't be a, a, a critical thinker. You might be a very intelligent person. You, may, you might be brilliant. You might be a great writer. But by my lights, you're not an intellectual. An intellectual has to be someone who maintains his independence in the interest of critical thought. It's not so easy. It's an ideal. The, the question is, why does Andre prefer 19th century novels to 20th century novels, and is that still the case? I take that to be a, a 1999 question, now that the 20th century has passed, too. Will you lighten up on the 20th century? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I read the 20th century all the time, and I don't read much, actually. But, um, I, I know that, but it seems that I've stopped somewhere in the 1950s. Um, I don't find a lot of the stuff that gets written now interesting, attractive, um, or even challenging. I, I find it, um, and I mean, I can be flippant and say, as long as the author is alive, I really don't want to read him. Um, but that's not quite it. That's not it. Um, I find that, but you know, I think that writers are really dishonest if they don't say that the only writers they're interested in is themselves, because nobody else is doing what they're trying to do. If I found someone who did what I was trying to do, then I would sort of bow to them. 
Um, and there are authors who have died who have done what I try to do. And, but I find that, I mean, I, and I say this to everyone that I meet, I read the first page of every single book that comes out. And sometimes the first sentence. And I mean, usually I will read the first sentence and say, oh my God, this is dreadful. And because somehow it doesn't address the kinds of contradictions that I expect from a novel. And you can say, you can tell right away from the first sentence, this man is not only intelligent, he's sensible, he knows how to put it, he has his sensitivities in the right place, and he's sort of rightly perplexed by the way things are. Then I would read to sentence number two. Um, but if I don't get this by the third sentence, I stop. Uh, let, let us take one more, if, if, if there is one more, and then, and then, we'll, then we're going to go. But is that because he was disappointed or because he loved it? Because of the conflict. And yet he wasn't going to be able to keep it really, right? I mean, that's my, my ultimate take. It was meant to be lost. Yes, and as soon as he came back, he wanted to go back. Well, <laughs> the couch, the couch was the best thing. Uh, what is your core question? Well, no, it has a life of its own. There's no question. That, uh, and everything we produce, like my children have a life of their own. I don't want them to, but they do. Um, but the, the point is that it has a life of its own, and I cannot, I, I, I muck around with it because I know that nothing, I can't hurt it. Um, has it had a catharsis? Um, yes and no. No, because it has, I haven't worked out Egypt. I haven't worked out my conflict with Egypt. I haven't worked out my conflict with my family, with being Jewish, all those things. I sort of addressed without resolving, nor could they have been resolved. But my, my book had another cathartic experience is that, and we didn't mention this, but what did I want out of life? When I was in Egypt, I knew what I wanted. I knew that I wanted to become a writer. That was my, that was what I wanted to do. I've always known that I wanted to be a writer. And so to arrive so late in my life, and, and have written a book that has done decently is 
is a satisfaction. It is a great satisfaction. And so I have to say, well, the kind of story I told doesn't jive with feeling satisfied, at which point I say, yes, you're right, then I should sort of underplay the satisfaction. But it's there, and I would probably feel it if it were taken away from me. Um, right now I don't feel it, but I know that if I'd lost, if I wake up and I say, Out of Egypt was never written, it would be a nightmare to have, to have had such a wonderful experience. I don't know, people always ask me what do I dream in? Uh, but I don't know what I dream in because I, I can't even remember my dreams most of the time. But um, the, the, no, the question is, English is my, it's my business tongue. I do business in English and I write in English. Is that the language that is closest to me? I don't think so. Uh, could I write? in the language that is closest to me. Absolutely not. I'd be a terrible writer. Um, would, I mean, would I try? Not even. Um, so I'm doing the best I can with English. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much.